Welcome to the Talking Horses Podcast, hosted by Steve Halfpenny. Steve is an internationally recognised horsemanship educator, Melbourne Equitana presenter and lifelong student of good horsemanship. His passion for learning about horses and helping them become willing partners to their owners is only exceeded by a willingness to share what he has learned with horse owners everywhere. So we've got Johnson Ryan with us again today. He's agreed to have another chat with everybody. And uh, you were just chatting about learning theory and what's going around today and some, some of the things that people have been told and John's opinion on it. So over to you, John. Well, they're always just opinions, aren't they, when all said and done. But um, I'm concerned because this whole thing about the sympathetic nervous system, as in fight or flight and the parasympathetic nervous system being rest and digest, seems to get mixed up you know it's like one is one or the other when in fact they're always in operation both they're all they work together they're not mutually exclusive and there are two aspects of the autonomic nervous system uh like if we're sitting resting on the couch watching tv or something like that we're just chilling out rest and digest you know watching the program and then something action you know jason statham runs in kicks somebody in the head and you get all excited and you know your heart goes a little bit more well maybe not yours but not mine either but anyway <laughs> and but the fact that this is happening it's kind of like oh well that pushes into this other side of things so then you might get an increased heart rate but then of course things relax and you just come back to your homeostasis your natural relaxed situation that's just how it happens now uh let me think of something like you know, you're on a horse and you're riding out in the hills and this has happened to me before a long long time ago up in Tatchby. you'd be riding and you're cresting the hill and as you're coming up the hill you see this big plume of smoke and you think oh hell because we're in california you know same as for you fires are a big deal so you're worried and you're thinking now you start tripping over into this other idea that well your sympathetic nervous system is going to come into play here I better get ready and you crest the hill and then you see it's just a neighbor and he's doing a control burn everything's cool don't worry well you relax you get back into your normal situation of things you know it's okay back to rest and digest if you like so as i say they're they're just automatic it happens either way one or the other but to me this is where it starts to get a little bit interesting because what we've got to think about is yeah sympathetic nervous system and parasympathetic but they both can work together because they're fluctuating it's happening all the time as we're working and living and moving around now if there are past experiences that color something in um a situation where you, i'll talk about humans now where you feel bad if you're pushed or, or forced into something then that trips you into your you know, fight or flight. Well, if you, I'll give you an example. You know, I love songs, right? I like songs. I like singing. And uh, the, one of the joys I have is is learning a song, whether it's lyrics or a melody. But I want to learn it, and that interest that I have is joyful, and it keeps me interested. So I try, and I get it to where it's at least like performance ready, and then I'm good to go. Now backtrack many many years ago when i was about 10 or 11 and i was at school briefly and the music teacher there was 
a very unpleasant character who took great pleasure in having all the boys get up and sing. He would say, get up on your hind legs and sing. Let's see you sing. Well, we're all, our voices are breaking at that age. So we sounded like, you know, cats being stepped on. It was terrible. And he thought he took great fun in that. And so he thought pushing us to sing, irrespective of the noise we made, was fine and okay. But at that embarrassment in front of all my friends, having to stand up and kind of half yodel through a song, was terrible and it, it affected me. And I didn't want to sing for about 10 years after that as a kid. I was about 19 when I suddenly decided, you know what, I'm going to try and, you know, there's an audition for a musical. So I went and totally different situation. The teacher there, well, it wasn't a teacher, it was the, you know, the guy who was running the thing. He was so enthusiastic and encouraging and that gave me the confidence to do it. And then I went on from there. My question is, how much better would it have been if I'd have had the, the, the second teacher in my first experience? Maybe I wouldn't have lost all those 10 years and things would have been more pleasant for me. So now I know I don't like to anthropomorphize. We've talked about this before, Steve, you know, about, uh, you know, putting human conditions on horses. You know, they don't think like we do. We don't operate the same way. But there is some relativity there because it, we're talking about the same autonomic nervous system we both have horses and humans and they both operate so if you learn something in an extreme state of fear or pressure are you really learning that or are you just forced into it and everything else outside of it is kind of washed out if i said to you I was trying to think about this the other day. I thought, well, you know, how can I express this to a human? Just say, say you want to go and be a, a cook, a chef or something. You go to the school and you say, right, you, you're in the, in the kitchen. The guy who's teaching you says, well, you know, whatever you do, don't touch that burner on the stove there because, you know, and you go and do it. You'd like me, I go and touch it just to see if it really is hot. Oh, man, it is hot. So you don't need a lot to know that that's not a good idea. You know, that's instant. So you've gone into the parasympathetic, sympathetic, in and out of those systems. Same with the horse. The horse goes and he sees a hot wire. He doesn't know what it is, but he reaches over. He touches it with his nose and bang. He doesn't need that reinforcement again. He says, stay away from that thing. So that's okay. So, but what happens if, if that situation is that you're cajoled or pushed into it like i said if you say you're the you know you're learning to cook and the fella says just get it get on and you know do this do that don't care about that and and you get well what about this burner and he says i don't but pushes you through something and then you burn your hand and then now you've forgotten everything that he was saying anything he said about ingredients how long you should be cooking or whatever it's like gone because you you were just worried about this burner thing and getting burned and then you got burned and now all of a sudden you're expected to remember everything he said well it's the same with the horse if you push that horse beyond his capabilities or push him up into a stress level now there's different kinds of stress but the stress we don't want to push him into is distress which is bad and they can't learn in that situation they their only thing is to su survive so it's not a healthy learning environment. So I guess what I'm trying to say is a little bit of stress, it's normal. 
anything you, when you're learning a new task, whether I'm learning something new, whatever. But that's just normal. But excessive stress, what happens then is the the ability to learn just decreases. It's just it's just not natural to learn in that state. All you're doing is surviving. Tom used to say to me, he wanted the horses in a learning frame of mind. I always remember that and I thought, that's an interesting expression, a learning frame of mind. So yeah, I want primarily a calm, emotional or unemotional state where the horse can accept what I'm trying to teach him. And that for some horses, it depends on levels. You know, you know, some horses are like, no, I'm, I'm okay. And then other horses, are, Ooh, they're all edgy. Just even walking into their space can make them really nervous. So if you if you push too hard, yeah, you might get the job done. But has the has the animal learned anything? So that idea of being able to calmly focus ourselves on what we're doing, how we're presenting ourselves to the horse, how we're presenting the request to the horse, that's the most important thing. And having them in a learning state of mind, but not pushing them over the edge. When you push them over the edge, the, the, the whole idea of, of being, how can I say, uh, able to recall things in a, a, a global way, you know, not just like one narrow thing like, okay, don't do this, don't do that. But everything that the horse is being taught, the feeling that you're giving them, that's what we're looking for. Uh, if, you, if you said something like, um, Tom, you've heard people say things like, oh, look at that horse, he's licking and chewing now, that is showing some respect now. Well, no, it, that's not, we know that's nothing to do with respect. It's just the fact that that's part of the autonomic nervous system in play, bringing the horse back to homeostasis. Tom used to say things like, he'd say, watch that horse, John. You see how he looks like he's holding his breath. And I'd look and I'd say, and you could see the horse like, and it did look like it was holding his breath. And then when you'd come through with something, you'd help him through a, an issue, a worry, you could see him almost, you know, sigh, and then lick and chew. Because that's just a natural, oh, just like us. If we've got in a very bad situation where we get nervous, you, you tend to get a dry mouth and you, you know, you, you get a bit nervous and then maybe your voice goes a little bit quavery and all these things start to play against you. And then you get worse and worse until you feel like I can't even speak. I can't say anything. <laughs> and that's just a natural response. So what we're doing is it's the same kind of thing with the horse, but what we ought to do is try and get it to where we can get these horses to look to us as support, directing them, supporting them, knowing that we do want some life, we do want some energy, we want that learning frame in mind, but we don't want it to be, you know, on the toes on edge all the time. You know, it's not necessary for a learning situation. So. I think that's the thing that I really want to get across to people about that. And, you know, it's heavy duty stuff sometimes is science, but I don't want to make it too sciencey. You know, it's like when, when Tom would talk about things, he would do it in more, you know, agreeable terms, uh, things that people could comprehend. You know, if, if I said, oh, you know, train your horse with successive approximation, 
what? Whereas Tom would say, uh, look for the smallest change and the slightest stride that the horse is making. That makes more sense, you see. So what we're trying to do is make sure we use these things that he said, but look at the relativity to what understanding and what knowledge we have about science and how we can view the horse. That way we don't make mistakes. So, Where's the best place for somebody to learn about the science, you know, in a, in a way that isn't too, I guess, scientific and, and complicated? Mm. Um, the, the easiest thing is like, well, buy my book. <laughs> but there's lots of, I'm sure there's lots of books out there. But, you know, when I put that one of mine together, it was just to try and make it more um, approachable and understandable to lay people, but not miss anything out. Uh, you can go to other, uh, there's lots of equitation science type things, but the one thing I would say, if you're going to try and study equitation science relating to the horse, make sure it's peer reviewed. Make sure that there's some backup. You know, that's what I said when I when I brought my book out. It was with within the sort of uh, overview of the International Society for Equitation Science. It's not just me. If it was just me, that would just be my opinion. And that's okay because everybody can have an opinion. But when it affects another person, another creature, as in the horses, then we should definitely at least have that opinion reviewed, peer-reviewed by multiple other people of quality and ability and understanding who can look at it and say, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. No, I'm not sure about that. We need to check on that because that's what science is. It's like, it's not proving uh, what's right necessarily. It's just saying, this is the facts. This is what we know up to now, but it is disproving the things that don't work or are not ethical. And that's what I'm trying to do all the time. Because again, why did, um, I remember you, okay, so whenever I, I met Tom the first time, a few decades ago, I remember sitting with him when I when I finally got to sit down and talk to him because of, you know, I didn't, I heard of him for a long time before I got to, to sit down and talk to him. But I was, a, I was kind of overawed because I'd heard so many stories about him, mainly from Ray, and if Ray Hunt was going to tell me what a marvelous person this guy was, well, shoot, I better be paying a lot of attention here. And in that respect, I was, um, as I say, maybe overawed. So I, I'd, I'd said to Tom at some point during the first conversations we had, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's like, you know what you're there for. I want to learn. Uh, but he would ask me, what, what, what am I, um, what do I need help with about something? And I'd say, well, just about everything, Tom, I just want to learn how to be better with horses. And um, he said, well, and he's, he's said this before, I'm sure he said, I can't teach you anything. But I can show you what I do, how I present things. But it has to come from you eventually. And until it comes from you, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. So I, I 
just kind of pondered on that the first time I heard it. Well, yeah, that's just how it is, isn't it? But he was trying to make a point that often is overlooked by people um, wanting to learn a skill. And that is that anybody can be, you know, to teach. There are different levels. Some people are good teachers, some are mediocre, and some are just terrible. But nevertheless, it has to come from the student. The student has to really want this because they're the ones who have to put the effort in to learn it, to know it, to understand it, and then to actually be able to use it. So that's what he was saying to me. And then from there on in, that's what I've always been trying to do. Just look for things that will make life better for the horse. And it's funny in that respect, it, it just, you know, people would say about Tom, how marvelous he was with other people, you know, with people in general and how he could just keep things very good and get steady and calm. And that's something I, I try and aspire to do myself because, uh, you know, the, it's, I mean, 69 years old now and I've made quite a few mistakes over those years. So I'd like to think I'm improving. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying I, I never made a mistake. I have. And, but I've tried to uh, not recover, but to, um, to not do those things again. You know, that's what experience is going to teach you. You can make mistakes. You try and avoid them. Um, do your best. Follow the right path. But if you do make the mistake, then learn from it and know that you're not going to do that one again. Right. I really enjoyed your book and, and uh, definitely made me think a lot about what I do myself, you know, and probably reflect on some of the things I've done in the past and feel a little bit bad about it. But at the time, I was do doing the best I could at the time, I suppose, with the knowledge that I had. But it's just really, yeah, it, it made me think about some of the situations I've been in with the horse, you know, and what was really going on and what I thought was going on, maybe not the same things. So, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend, especially your Audible book. That's For me, that's great because it's you and it's your voice and, you know, it's definitely coming from, I think it's, it worked out better. I wish I had done the Audible book earlier, but anyway, it's out today, now, this week, month, or whatever. But um, I wish I'd have done it earlier because I think it lended itself to that more so than just as a book. The book's great as a reference for sure. But because there's, there's a lot in it, and I, I tried to cram as much as I could in. I mean, it took me 10 years to write the darn thing, so there should be some decent stuff in. Originally, the, the original manifesto... <laughs> was this thing and now you know like i remember reading about an editor who said the, the best editor is the one who throws away something like 10 times more than there is well that was it and then it got down to this so i felt good about that at the end of it it's not that there wasn't any value in the things i threw away it was just that it really didn't have to be so long-winded it, it could have been said a little bit more concisely um but having done that, making it concise, sometimes it's a little bit heavy duty to, you know, you might, it's in a paragraph and you read that paragraph, but then you're into the next one. Oh boy, what was that last one? And what was the one before that? So that's why I think in, with the Audible book, you can say, all right, let's have a listen to this. And what did he say there? Hang on a minute. Let's just stop that. Let's talk about it, you know, with your friends. <laughs>
Yeah. Um, and for me, it's awesome because I, you know, spend a lot of time in the car. So I'm driving. The other day, it was seven hours in the car, so I pretty well listened to the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, jeez, yeah. I, I remember that was why years ago when I did um, the narration for Tom's book, True Unity, that was it. It was just totally selfish. I thought, I, I can't get everything I want from this book. There's so much in it, and there's so many like really deep things in so I, I went in the studio and I just narrated it. And then I'd do that, you know, it'd take me six hours to get to Tom's from where I was living at the time. So I just banged the tape on and listened to what he was saying. And that's why, you know, when I, after a while I'd been up a few times and I said, you know what, Tom, I think this is really useful if you wanted to use it. <laughs> Here's a cassette, Here's a tape of it. And that's, you know, the rest is history kind of thing. <laughs> Well, thank goodness that you actually did. Otherwise, I think there's a whole lot of stuff would never ever get recorded that he that he did. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I'm just working on some things now, Steve. I'm really excited about. It. It's kind of crazy because um, I, I've been doing things for the you know the music and then some film stuff and that. And but I've had all this stuff that we filmed when I was going up to Tom's back in '99. Uh, and it's been sitting there and I keep thinking I, I knew what I wanted to do because people had talked to Tom about horses uh, you know questions about how do I do this how do I do that but I thought well what wouldn't it be interesting to know he's got a fascinating background and he's got some amazing stories so I thought I wonder if I can just kind of treat it as a biography and interview him that way and I did so I found all these tapes, like they've, I've got I don't know, hours and hours of it, where we just, he recorded him sitting in the chair telling me all these stories. And it's good quality, thankfully. It's not, you know, poor quality stuff, um, which unfortunately some of the clinic stuff was because there weren't people there manning the, uh, manning the operation. It was just kind of one man show and he did the best he could with what he had. But with this, we had a couple of cameras and a good mic on it. So it's really interesting to hear Tom talk about his life and how he developed and the things he did. And uh, so I'll get that together at some point. You know, I'm working on it now. That'd be great. Yeah, I've got a horse of my own. And, you know, after reading your book, I'm thinking, how would I approach him? Like, he's nearly 10 now. And if I take him into the arena, like, he, that bothers him. And his mother died uh, four months ago, I think, and he, that changed him. Now he's he seems more confident that she's not around, which is a little interesting. Yeah, and then if and you know if, if I could use the flag because all my tools and he gets so he didn't bother at all about what I did. But if somebody behind him or alongside or anywhere else moved their flag, he'd lose his mind. Oh, that's really really interesting. Like I can. I can go nuts with mine with, you know, in a decent, just to get him used to it, not actually trying to desensitize him to it. But anybody else moves them and they get a massive reaction. And then after his, after his mother died, then I noticed three or four people are in the arena and they're moving flags around. He's not bothered. Oh, that's just, yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. But then if I took him out of there into my dressage arena, which is another hundred meters away, 
he couldn't settle at all you know so the last time i went out i i just yeah i just went okay i'm gonna stay out here and just talk to people teach them and and not try and ride him and not try and tell him anything i just hold him so by lunchtime like three hours later he's ready for me to get on like it took three hours of doing nothing and i went now you can't so that it comes right into i think your conversation about it's how he's feeling there's no there's no trying to teach him anything when it's like that because it doesn't matter what i do he won't remember it great yeah you could get it done maybe but what do you learn anything from it necessarily yeah that's it yeah it's good the change has got to come from inside him yeah and that's that's how you approach it and that's a decent way of approaching it because you just sort of exposing him to something without having the force and the pressure on which is going back to what I said before, you know, you can, you know, let, let somebody habituate to a situation. And hopefully you support them, you know, by whatever means you can, you know, whether it's scratching them or whatever, just let them know you're there and you're calm, you're okay. And maybe then they'll kind of settle. But it's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough if you kind of think you're just going to flip a switch and get a horse right on something like that. There, there's something worth exploring on that, Steve. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I guess I always have why, why. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> that, yeah, something worth exploring on that with um, sort of counter conditioning the horse. And, you know, I've, we we talked about this when I was over one time about, you know, hand feeding, giving them treats and such, but it can help just get them over some of these little things where just association, you know, I mean, everything that we do is what they call associative learning. The horse perceives a situation, a place or an environment with something that happened before. That's the problem sometimes because that's that thing about, you know, well, I remember last time I saw somebody with a flag, something bad happened for some reason. Goodness knows what, I don't know. But in his mind, that was something that troubled him. So if you can try and have an association with something good, and, you know, people who might poo-poo and say, oh, you know, you don't hand feed horses, you don't feed horses just because they can't do a job. Well, it's positive reinforcement. And if it gets the job done easier and more helpful to the horse, just do it. It's for a small time and it's not the end of the world. And you'll be so much happier because the problems get resolved quicker. It, there's, a, there's an interesting thing. I was talking to a friend of mine, um, oh, I don't know, last week, week before, and we were discussing how we both have changed quite a lot with regard to training since what we did, say, 20 years ago because of the understanding more about the um, horse's brain and how it thinks things through and how it works things out. And we were both talking about, you know, this idea of positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, you know, which is like, well, that's it. And those are two avenues to teach a horse. And both are equally valid, whereas the majority of horse training has been based on negative reinforcement, pressure and release. We now incorporate positive reinforcement, whether it's scratching them or a treat or something to bring things on. They've been doing this for decades with 
uh, zoo animals and sea animals, you know, uh, sea mammals, should I say. And it's worked marvelously. But and then it w went over to dogs, canines, and that worked great with canines. We're only just tickling the surface of it with horses, maybe for the past five, six, seven years. I don't know, but it it can get better and we should use it. It's a tool that we can use and it's not a crutch. It's just to make things better and easier. And at the end of the day, if we want a willing partnership with a horse, well, then let's do what we can to make it so it's not adversarial. It's not a forceful thing. And there's no, you know, this whole deal with dominance training is uh, it's kind of passe, really. It is, yeah. And I think I I try not to talk about respect or anything anymore when I'm teaching people, and uh, and and I make a point of saying I don't believe in the dominance theory stuff because you're actually training them to be ridden. You're not trying to be a horse. You're not trying to just chase them around the paddock and be the leader. And it's a, it's a whole different way of of trying to keep them calm, isn't it? And get them to understand what you want them to understand. And the only thing I suppose is to stay safe, you know, to make sure your space is important to them. Don't run me over. Don't don't knock me over, even if you get worried. Yeah. Well, even like that, Steve. That's another thing. Because when I was talking to Tim about this um, last week, we were saying, and I said, maybe we should be teaching um, the. Uh, positive reinforcement first before negative reinforcement and we thought about it because you don't you know usually just well i'll teach you how to come off this pressure with a lead rope pulling you this way or tapping you to make you go or something like that but your first interactions with that horse are quite important and i i don't know why I, it didn't come across to me before but i he just said we were talking about the differences between different horses and the, the approach we make and we might do this might do that but if it's a if it's a mustang a brumby your first interaction more than likely unless you're just going to rope it and drag it around and you know force it to do this your first interaction is more likely to be some positive reinforcement maybe a treat maybe a piece of carrot and then a, you're trying to touch them and get them used to knowing that when you touch them, it's not a bad thing. It's not anything to be afraid of. You can scratch them. And then when you scratch them and they like it, at first they might not, but after a while they think, no, oh, this isn't too bad. But these are the wild horses or feral, whatever you want to call it. And um, they are the real test of your ability to get your message across to horse. You know, it's one thing for a domestic horse. It's like half broke to start with. But the, the Mustang, the Bromby, well, you're, you know, it's all bets are off. You better up your game and <laughs> be, know what you're doing to get it right. So maybe the positive reinforcement is the, the thing that breaks the, the uh, barrier of concern for the horse. Well, it has with me. I remember, you know, my, you've met my horse, Gandalf, and that there are times you'd go down to catch him. And he'd know that it was the time you were going to do something, you know. So you go down to catch him, and he's like, doesn't want to be caught. So you, so you do the, what I was taught, you know. If you don't want to be caught, I'll move you around until you face up, and all the rest of it. And then, you know, an hour every time you do it, it's thinking this isn't getting much better, actually. You know, 
and I'm male, so it took me a little while to, to look for another answer. But yeah, now I go down with carrots in my pocket, and you know, he's at the gate. It's it's like not a, it's not like it's um you defeated something, you know. It's like I, I remember I, I may have told you this, Steve, but I remembered Margaret Tom's wife telling me uh, about one time he and Tom and his brother, I think it was Jim, they went out to gather a couple of horses off the hill and they were, you know, the horses were just loose in the fields. And uh, you saw the two horses and um, Tom was there and he, uh, he called for Margaret's horse, but he called in Margaret's voice, you know, a very higher pitch voice. And the horse come, looked up and come running over and Jim was kind of making fun of him, you know, I call him like a girl there, you know, and Tom just got, got his horse for the whole time. He says, well, beats walking after him, doesn't it? <laughs> and I remember him, that was so funny to hear that, you know, because that's a fact, you know. I mean, the thing is, it's like people that, um, I don't know, this whole macho mentality, you know, cowboy stuff, it's, it's, uh, it's all well and good, but, you know, just uh, flexing for flexing's sake is is baloney. I'll try not to say bad words on here. <laughs> no, but, but but mine. It, you know, when I look at him, it, I went, "You were actually worried. It's not that uh, you're being awkward and being clever and just don't want to be caught. You're not playing games. You're actually you're you're in a concerned state, and it's like." actually pushing you around when you're in a concerned state doesn't really get you relaxed. <laughs> so I'll teach you to be concerned. <laughs> no, you just kind of like, yeah, what, what can I do to the end of it? Yeah. I mean, when you look back at some of the crazy things, I, I remember back in, back in the day when they did all the, 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 the round penning as they call it, you know, it became a verb to round pen. Um, and we can thank various people for that. Uh, but I remember seeing one guy and he put this horse in a round pen and he backed the two horse trailer up to the pen and he opened the gate. So the, there was only one way out and that was just to go in there. And then he proceeded to thrash this horse around. I don't know. He had a flag or a last rope or whatever. Just the horse ran round and round and round and round and round the other way and then that way and then the other way and then tried to jump out and then this way. And then eventually it just ran into the trailer. And then he turned around and went, ta-da. And I thought, geez. Even back then, I mean, I'm talking, I don't know, 20 odd years ago, 30 years, I don't know. Uh, even then he thought, come on, that's not a really great success story, is it? You know, but, but people are still doing it now. You know, still use it like that. They still use the, put the pressure on the horse to the degree that the horse isn't really learning, he's just escaping. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could do the same thing totally differently, couldn't you? And help the horse find it rather than put him in a state where he can't even see it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's like you said before, Steve, you know, the, the horse, he's bothered. So, you know, just running him around because you can't catch him and then finally being able to catch him, you didn't cure the bother. You were just there telling you, you might as well give up now because I'm going to get you. And that's, that's in a way, I, mean, I know I've been there. I've done that myself years ago. It's like, 
you think you think back and you think, damn. Yeah. You did say something in your book. You said something in your book about learned helplessness, and I'd heard that before. But could, could you sort of define that a little bit for us? Yeah, it's it's like we, we, we take a, an example like um, like horses that back in the day, you know, when they used to snub them up, you know, time to a snubbing post, and the horse can't get away. So then they come in and they throw a tarp over it and then shakers and rattles and bangs and then put a rope on them, pull them this way, pull them that way, and then get the saddle on. And then the guy gets on and they do this in, I don't know, it's Argentina still, I don't know. They get on and then the horse is still tied to the post. And then the guy gets on and he has a big stick and then he thrashes the horse until it stops bucking and jumping around. And then the horse is like that. Well, back in the day, like Tom used to say, I don't want to break horse's spirit because that's what that is. You know, where did the term breaker come from? Well, you're breaking what? Breaking the spirit. Yeah. Is that good? Nah. No, because you're losing so much quality because the horse has just basically said, I have to give up. I have to just stop fighting. I have nothing left to offer, nothing. Uh, the fight or flight isn't working because I can't. I can't fight you. I'd try if I could, but, you know, we're, we're, I'm, I'm hampered because I'm tied up. I can't flee. So um, I have no other alternative except, which is what a lot of mammals do when all else, uh, you know, when all up, up avenues of escape or whatever, they just curl up and... That's it. I might as well die. They don't die. They just get to live in a bad state then for the rest of their life. Pretty sad. When when I was at a big show once, you know, there's always stuff happening out the back, isn't there? You you do your little performance or whatever you're doing, but out the back there's all this warming up and training and stuff going on. And one of the people, it's funny how people ask you questions, you know, and, and I'm thinking, you know, they're going to ask me, what gear do I use? How do I work with it? What, you know, what's my horse's name? You know, whatever. And they said, what goes on at the back? I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, there's a lot of horses out there somewhere. What's, what goes on at the back? And I thought, oh, then I was in the warm-up ring, you know, there's a whole bunch of horses and, and the road was right next to the warm-up. And I remember riding my horse past there and garbage trucks go past and all sorts of different vehicles and and he'd like whoa what's that and i said yeah it's interesting a lot of the horses out there paid no attention to anything like they go around and then warm up and they do their little patterns and and they said what was yours like i said he was a bit concerned about stuff out there he said we, so you'd rather have the other one i said no i'd rather have mine i'd rather have him tell me that did you see that? I went, yeah, it's all right. It's okay. It's no worries. But yeah, I guess that's almost, they're just in their little box, I suppose. Yeah. That was, and that's the thing that where Tom and talk about, um, let's see, we're talking about stallions once. And he said to me, I said, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with this one stallion. He's really kind of gets lost. And especially when the mares are around, you know, obviously he's, you know, and I've got to show him at some point and, you know, I can't stop people riding the mare in the shows, you know. He said, well, 
you don't want to stop him. You don't want to shut things down completely, but you want him to be able to do his job. And I'm thinking, yeah, no. <laughs> and he said, well, you just have to try and expose him to this a little bit more before so that you don't, it doesn't all come in all at once. And I'm thinking, okay, am I going to do this? And then, you know, you're lying in bed at night and you're thinking, well, hell yeah, I can do this. I can do it simply at home in the training areas that I have. You know, I've got three big arenas there. I've got to, I can put a mare in the round crawl while I'm working him in the other arena. Eventually, maybe I can put him in the arena that is next to the round crawl and still, you know, maybe I'll be up here and I'll stay up here until he can weather it and get down there. And I'm not going to chastise him if he starts to, you know, just look at her. But if he starts to drift, well, then we have to get back on track and I've gone too far. But what he was, I think the way I took it from Tom was that unless you give the, the horse a chance to be exposed to these things, then you won't change them. And if you do expose them to those things, don't expect them to just change like that. Just build it up incrementally to the degree where they still listen to you. In other words, you can do a job with them and it takes time. You know, and he said, you know, sometimes he's, he told me about, I think it's in true unity as well. He told me about getting a stallion that he had to work alongside or in an area where there were mares. And he said he got to where you could even go up and visit with the mares over the fence and, you know, talk to them and one thing or another. But then when we had, when we had to leave and go, you just, okay, I'm ready. Let's go. We'll go. So it's, it's all doable. It's just how we approach it and how we present it to the horse. That's, uh, but again, you know, sometimes everybody wants it done like immediately, get it fixed. So if the horse starts doing this or doing something that you don't like and you show displeasure, well, we just give it a whack and that'll work. Not. <laughs> yeah, I got a, I have a friend in Tasmania and, uh, you know, we were all doing at the time we were in the Prelly system, you know, so we're putting tapes in and we're seeing how we're going and trying to improve. And he put this tape up and he's got his stallion at Liberty. He goes through the herd of mares and it follows him out. And he was different. You know, I still still see him a lot. He's a great guy. And uh, I said, how did you do that? Like, did you push him away or, or get him, you know, busy when he was looking at the mares? He said, no, nah, just worked on the connection. Just got him more and more connected with me until he did, it didn't matter where he was. He just carried on following me. I went, wow. And that is so the opposite of dominance theory stuff, isn't it? It's just. It, it goes back to that thing again, Steve, where we we're talking about the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous systems. They're always in play, but wouldn't it be better to avoid pushing so hard into that deal where they fight or flight rather than do that, just get them to be, more comfortable with what you are, how you present things, so that they look to you for direction. They look to you for the support. And that's just something that you have to earn. You know, as a, as a horseman, a horsewoman, you've got to learn that. Um, and going back to what Tom said, you can't teach you anything. That's come from inside you. So, you know, like you understand it completely. You've got that feeling, you've got that. What we have to do now is try and put that out to other people. 
the people that we teach and say, yeah, I want you, I, I want to give this to you, but I can't, you know, like Tom had said to me, I wish I could crawl inside your hide for five minutes. John, I give you this, but no, I can't do that. So you're going to have to do it yourself. You know, <laughs> He's like, yeah. Um, and there is a joy to that because you own it. Yeah. 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 It's like those, those three levels of stress, you know, different kind of stress is you stress, uh, normal stress, and then uh, distress. Well, we want to avoid distress. Um, but the other, the other levels of stress is just normal stuff, you know, like, um, I've got a fly on my head, maybe I can wash it. A horse has a tail, you can waft that fly. Um, he can, he can do something about it. It's annoying, but he can do something. He feels like he's in control. That was the other thing that Tom would often say. You want it to be like the horse is making these decisions. He's working it out for himself. And then he owns it. You didn't just force it on him, make him do it. Um, and going back to the, you know, look, look at these parallels again. Like that's the learned helplessness. What is that? Well, that's too many damn flies on the horse where he shuts down and says, I can't do anything about this. They're just covered in flies. So I stopped even bothering. Sad situation. So you hear the words. It's it, it's sometimes it's hard to understand what it all means, doesn't it? Because I heard that a long time ago, and I, th I think they were talking about. I think it was a go at dominance theory, saying if you do that too much, the horse will just shut down and get into that learned helplessness thing. If you just push, push, push the whole time. Yeah, and some horses will deal with it, you know, the kind of more, uh, what's the word? Not phlegmatic, but some horses are like, like a lot of stallions, they're very, uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm tough anyway, so I'll just deal with it. But you're missing so much of that connection with the horse. That's the thing that is so sad. You know, that you, you, you just, if you don't care about it, well, all right. You know, you don't care about it, but it's a damn shame if you don't care about it because it could be something really good for you and certainly for the horse. Absolutely. Well, that was a bit of a chat, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that went quick. Yeah. <laughs> so... I'll, I'll publish this and uh, put a little note on to where they can find your your ebook now. Or you, so you reckon is Amazon the best place for them to get it? Um, I think it's Audible or yeah, Amazon Audible, whatever. Yeah, for the yeah, either or. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I was taking, I was saying to Joyce about um, you know, like with the music, the EP that I just brought out. It's like I I didn't realize. I've never done the streaming thing before because before we used to make records, you know, and they'd be coming out as CDs or whatever, you know, now it's like everything's streaming. So all these things like Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, uh, whatever, they stream your song, but you only get point .013 cents for, for a stream. So you have to, to make a dollar, somebody has to listen to your damn song for 259 times. <laughs> So it's like, my lord. Whereas the other service, there's a service called Bandcamp, and they're really good, and you can put your music on there, and they give you eighty percent of your revenue back. So, 
much better deal. Yeah, no, it's crazy. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's the way everything works in the world, though, isn't it? Supply chains of, of all sorts of stuff. The person that grew the vegetables or did the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the guys at the top, the, the CEOs with all the money. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. So maybe we'll do some more of these, John, and go through bits of... Yeah, and I'll, I'll get off of the subject and go on to something different. <laughs> it kind of went... Oh, no. <laughs> well, we'll stop it here, and uh, we might have a bit of a chat anyway. So, good talking to you, John. Great to hear you. All right, mate. Good talking to you, Steve. Thanks for listening to the Talking Horses podcast. You can find more information about Steve at stevehalfpenny.com.